What is responsible business? The chances are you've heard a lot about it, but it probably means something different to each of you. What makes an organisation responsible? And should you even want to make your organisation responsible? And if you do, how can you make a lot of theoretical principles work in the real world? I'm Alex Edmonds, Professor of Finance and Academic Director of the Centre for Corporate Governance at London Business School. You're about to hear insights from the Centre's flagship event for 2019, with experts from the top of global finance exchanging ideas on responsible business. For the first panel discussion, joining Una Harper, independent non-executive of KPMG, and Share Action CEO Catherine Howarth, is UBS Global Head of Sustainable and Responsible Investment Julie Hudson, and Arabesque Chairman George Kell. Chairing the panel is LBS's Paul Coombs, Chairman of the Centre for Corporate Governance. But before the panel begins, let me get back to my first question. What is a responsible business? A lot of people assume that responsible business practices mean making less money. My view is that actually the reverse is true. It's about growing the pie so both investors and society reap the benefits. It's about positively creating value for everybody. If you're negatively offsetting things to hide what you're doing in your core business, you're not behaving responsibly. One of the most irresponsible business practices, in my opinion, is failing to innovate. When you coast and refuse to shake the status quo, everyone in your company suffers and society doesn't benefit from the progress your organisation could have delivered. Let's hear from my colleague Yanis Yanu on this one first. He's dedicated much of his research here at LBS to the question of whether social responsibility helps or hinders performance. Here's his take on it and how current research can help us. The link, the famous link between responsibility and financial performance. A lot of data, a lot of advanced econometric methods, a lot of theory development, thousands, like quite literally thousands of papers afterwards. I think that most academics would point towards a positive direction, a positive link between responsibility and financial performance. But in my humble opinion, that's just the surface. There's two other very important areas. First of all, what are the value creation mechanisms? How do we get from responsibility to financial performance? Is it through employee engagement? Is it through better innovation? Is it through better access to finance? Is it through better enhanced brand loyalty? Is it by averting future legal constraints that a company might face? A big area of research where a lot of my colleagues are actually going deeper and understanding even causally the mechanisms through which a responsible practice can actually translate into financial performance. But even that's not enough. We need a house. We need an organizational structure. We need to build organizations from scratch that enable these value creation mechanisms to happen. Before we look at the deeper detail of how we can create value from responsible business, we need to make sure that we're all aiming for the same goals. To define the boundaries, panel chairman Paul Coombs kicked off a discussion. Una Harper said business is far from where it needs to be on agreeing a definition. 20 years ago, 30 years ago, a board might have a committee that looked at social and environmental <coughs> stuff, but it mostly was charitable giving. 
10 years ago, things had changed a lot. And those subcommittees of the board might have been looking further than just charitable giving to think about the environment a bit more. Nowadays, the better companies are certainly thinking about a much more responsible business. My goal of where I want to be and I want to see every board is being a responsible social board, making its decisions, thinking about the interests of all stakeholders. That means listening to them, understanding them and factoring them into decision making. It's a view Julie Hudson from UBS echoes. Is responsible business harder than it sounds? So in my team, we spend quite a lot of time at the moment talking about inequality. And then, of course, that takes me back to something right at the beginning when I was doing my master's in economic regulation and competition. And people were so puzzled about, you know, why do you end up with these big concentrations of power? And all kinds of crazy explanations were being thought up, one of which was, oh, it's just a mathematical function. You know, it's the log of this type multiplied by some other thing. And, yeah, over a long period of time, when you have an industry, it progressively becomes very concentrated and you end up with two or three firms in the industry. And I think while there is a problem, which is when something becomes very big, it's hard to see very often, you know, the right hand can't see what the left hand's doing. And that sense of purpose can be lost. Catherine Howarth of Share Action sees a bigger picture. Purpose is paramount. If a business has clarity of purpose in society, responsibility naturally follows. Whether, you know, one, one really large dominant and successful business in a sector starts to really move on something, it's amazing how others will follow. And so I, I do actually think what Larry Fink and BlackRock are up to are quite interesting, and it's very easy to be deeply cynical about it, and I'm sure many people in the room maybe are. On the other hand, kind of BlackRock sort of seems to be talking themselves into a position where they kind of probably have to follow up on quite a bit, we'll see. <laughs> but this question that he poses for businesses about their real purpose in society seems to me a really fruitful question because once you've got clarity on purpose, then in a way, a lot of other things can fall into place around that, including questions about potential trade-off between money now and, and looking after other things. But George Kell of Arabesque saw little need for trade-offs. Despite chiming with Catherine's optimism, he said that responsibility does not have to come at the expense of quick returns. I do believe there are universal notions of responsibility on an ethical basis, which are understood everywhere by all people, and one should respect those basic imperatives of humanity. And we could go into detail here from human rights to anti-corruption and so forth. But I firmly believe if humanity is capable of learning anything out of history, it should uphold some basic notions of universal responsibility that is linked to the basic values of humanity. Sustainable investing does not come at the expense of returns, number one. Secondly, increasingly it's possible to actually associate your positive values with how you invest, because you can now say, I'm for gender empowerment, for example, I'm for taking climate action. So you can choose with your personal values increasingly without sacrificing performance. I think this is a breakthrough, a historical breakthrough. I'm very optimistic that this movement will catch on rapidly. Responsible business looks here to stay, for the foreseeable future at least. But is that necessarily a good thing? London Business School's Alenka Kachpachik broke it down to launch the second session of the day. 
what are those conditions under which CSR really pays? Is it always or is it only sometimes? And for whom is that the case? So understanding the contextual aspects as well as the contingent aspects of when CSR creates value, I think, is sort of the next step for us as academics. How do you design an organization that's going to bring or ally everyone around that same goal? And, and also, I think the bigger question then is, you know, can you be mainstream and, and actually do that? Or are you necessarily going to alienate some of your workers? You're going to alienate some of the customers. For Matt Peacock, former group director of corporate affairs at Vodafone, the very concept of business responsibility needs to be turned on its head. How can we actually do good rather than just minimising harm? The term CSR is mm. broken. It's bust. It's dead. It's polluted beyond redemption. Honestly, 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 I've spent many, many years in companies trying to get companies to do what they need to do. The term CSR gets in the way. When you judge a company, don't just look at its P&L, look at its org chart. Look at who's doing CSR in the org chart. Where do they sit, if they exist at all? And where they sit in companies that do this is very often in a broom cupboard at the end of a corridor with three junior people in it. All of this starts from the wrong place. Responsibility is only half of the equation. Responsibility is about the avoidance of doing harm. It's about the diminution of the negative. That is not a company's own, only role in life. That's like writing a parenting guide that consists exclusively and entirely of advice on how not to abuse your child, yeah, rather than raise a good and kind human being. It's only half of what a company needs to do. The other half of what a company needs to do is deliver proactively a positive social outcome through its core business. Do we need to look at CSR differently? Daniel Summerfield of USS says yes. One of the biggest concerns I have is when we refer to stakeholders and some of these issues, what you know, commonly referred to as ESG, but I hate that term yeah, as well, yeah. it's when we refer to this as non-financial. Because I think as soon as you refer to it as non-financial, yeah, yeah. the people who are in That's charge of finances yeah, yeah. will turn off and they stick them in the broom cupboard. And so, you know, I think in order to mainstream this and in order to integrate yeah. it into every aspect of the, in the kind of investment chain from the beginning to the yeah. end, these need to be looked at through a different lens. And, you know, there's a whole range of case studies of companies that have imploded because they haven't taken these things seriously enough. Business responsibility takes hard work to make it real. But the returns can be immense, as Andrea Sullivan of Bank of America told us in the final panel discussion. In our case, we were given license to start looking at things with a long-term lens, including how we deploy our capital with our clients, how we think about our operational organization, how we look at risk, which is a very big one for a financial institution, and how we partner with our communities and the effect that we have. So this is our ESG lens that we use against everything. And our first real public response was in the philanthropic space. We knew we needed to set goals. We set a $2 billion goal over 10 years to provide philanthropic support for organizations to increase job opportunities, economic mobility, affordable housing, and basic needs. All issues that our customers, especially in the US, were struggling with. And I talk more about the importance of that commitment to level set the bank 
the number of employees that have shared their skills over the years and how I think that's a huge part of engagement, both in the community but also within companies for a successful ESG transition. The second thing we did is we put out our first CSR report. We were CSR then. And within that report, we also made an environmental commitment of $50 billion to green business, to a low-carbon economy. That was the first time we'd really addressed that, and it went to the heart of the bank's financing. We've gone from philanthropy to CSR to now ESG. I'm not a fan of ESG and the name. In the finance space, it definitely means something. It is the metrics that are used by the finance community to assess whether or not a company is fit for purpose and will be in the future. I just think that our role is much bigger than a metric. We're, we're sort of responsible for being the consultants into the bank for sustainability. As more and more evidence of the positive effects of business responsibility on financial performance emerges, the more companies will share their methods, says Howell Ball of EY. And when companies share their methods, others will follow them. So I do think there's a scope here for much more academic work in these to show more empirical evidence. But of course, as companies start disclosing more and more of these metrics, it will be a self-fulfilling circle that there'll be more data available for academics to prove the empirical, not just correlation, but causality, uh, as well as doing it. So I think the work that we were doing was to go back to say, you know, what is your business value creation strategy and how are you decomposing that in a way that you can actually deliver transparency uh, for what you're doing? Because that will deliver fundamentally change the position on trust and we also think will activate people to do more long-term investment. If those disclosures are available in a much more concerted way, not just on ESG, but across the intangible aspects of the long-term value chain, that will allow pension funds to start thinking about how they set their mandates for uh, fund managers to make sure that they start investing for the long term. The fund managers very rarely get investment mandates more than three years, maybe five years at most. So they, they themselves, even the most long-term investors, in theory, are still only looking for a relatively short-term position compared to a standard business model cycle. So we have to somehow break this continuity between the suppliers of wealth the managers of wealth and the creators of wealth. What happens when your rivals aren't interested in being sustainable? Might you lose your competitive position if you focus on responsibility? Alan Knight of ArcelorMittal learned from experience when he came up against his equals in China. The pace of change in the decarbonisation of the steel industry is very reliant on us finding the technology and to a policy context which helps us manage that issue. So when we talk to the European politicians, we talk a lot about a border tax adjustment so that if you're going to make steel more expensive if it's made in Europe because of carbon, you can't make that steel from China have a competitive advantage. So it's a really good example where the, the public policy, technology, innovation thing has to work hand in hand. And at the moment, it's not quite fitting. So if you were interviewing Mr Mittal, he would talk to you about border tax adjustment, border adjustment, border right. adjustment before right. that. Yeah. The other thing we're also doing is trying to find a way of getting the market involved. And we're developing, it's a bit like the FSC story, but slightly different, which is a label which actually is independently verified to say that this still is made to high standards with the theory of change, long-term vision is that people will start specifying steel which has got better environmental credentials, of which carbon and raw material traceability to be one of them. So we make it easier for the market to choose that steel and not that steel. Closer to home, 
among the people in your own organisation, how can we incentivize responsibility and embed it into the heart of our organisation? David Pyatt of Allegan gave us his perspective. I think more and more compensation plans, at least for the annual bonus, are <laughs> containing this. Of course, then you're back on to LTI, and usually most LTI schemes or plans, programs, are, are driven through either TSR or relative TSR. And I think the danger of separating it too far away is appropriately investors will come around the other way and say, this is just another way of the management team making sure that they're going to get paid. Because of, you know, when you get into arbitrary, you know, did they make it, did they not make it? And you get into all the sort of arguments about is restricted stock, for instance, a good way of rewarding management, boards, different topic, versus things that are highly measurable. So I think there you're in this balancing act again. I think that's where, in a really well-run company, and this is probably way below the purview, beyond understanding the policy of a compensation committee, of saying, let's imagine, you know, you're putting in some piece of equipment into a major plant that will reduce energy consumption or decrease waste or whatever, and this, let's say, takes two or three years, it's good for that plant manager and even more the people beneath him to know this year's annual bonus will have something on that, next year's bonus, surprise, surprise, will have something on that, and until it's up and running and it's proven, it's delivered, we'll have something. So there's ways of, if you like, deconstructing in a positive way the goals from the top all the way down to maybe three or four levels, depending on the size of the company down below, to get what you should by incentivizing it as a positive carrot. We ended the day with a look at the big picture. Can sustainability and performance be aligned? Keynote speaker Michael Lewis of E.ON hammered the question out with Tom Gosling of PwC. My experience has taught me that they are aligned. The question is one of timing. I think our experience has taught us that if you kick against what society wants, as reflected in ultimately law and regulation and government policy, but also in local opposition, they are lights on a dashboard which tell you we're doing something that society doesn't want. It's not sustainable if society doesn't want it. And what will happen is you may continue to invest and then you end up with a whole load of sunk costs, which is what happened, is, is a lot of that fossil fuel investment that was made, not just by us, by, by many companies, was ultimately written off because society doesn't want it. The question now, then, is not whether or not we should practice responsible business, but how we do it. A long-term vision is key, as Michael Lewis says. There is a consensus that we have to do this. The challenge is, how do we do it in the most cost-effective way and in the most equitable way so that the costs and benefits are spread across countries and within countries in the right way. And that's how the politics is playing out. And even then, you will have short-term versus long-term trade-offs. In the end, yes, sometimes businesses will take a short-term profit, but I would argue, and I don't know if the empirical data bears this out, those companies that keep a focus on the long term will ultimately be more successful. Is business getting more responsible? 
While our panels did not agree on the answer, they did all agree on one thing, that it needs to happen and it's both urgent and important. The last 10 years has seen incredible change. There is progress, but that progress needs to continue and needs to accelerate. What will the next 10 years bring? More change is almost certain. But where that change comes from, from business itself, or from outside forces beyond our control, is not certain at all. The mission of the LBS Centre for Corporate Governance is to use rigorous research to influence the practice of business, but also to learn from business practices what are the important topics in the real world that academics should do research on. And we aim to promote this mission in at least two ways. Number one is to hold leading events with the world's best practitioners and academics exchanging views and insights on key corporate governance topics. And the second way is to make rigorous academic research accessible in simple language for a practitioner audience. And we do this through our website, which is london.edu slash corporate governance. Again, that's london.edu slash corporate governance. And on that website, we present top quality research on both sides of topical issues, such as boards or executive pay or investor stewardship, and also some practitioner articles which are influenced by research and evidence. And I hope that whatever organisation that you're in, that you will find that this research and insights are useful as you embed better responsibility and governance into your organisations. Thank you very much for listening.